Hi, this is Nick Ferraro, the Philly Elvis. And when I'm not swiveling my hips out there, I'm hanging out listening to Setless Bruce. Whoa, Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Listing Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson, and today we are doing one of my favorite things, which is crossing multiple time zones, countries, borders, oceans, and talking to one of our UK friends. And joining me today is Dan. Welcome, Dan. Thanks, Jesse, and it's great to be talking to you, and greetings from England. Yes, thank you so much. You know, Dan is one of our big supporters on Twitter and on the podcast. He's always interacts with me, and so uh, when I had put out my pathetic call, like, hey, I need people to talk to, uh, <laughs> Dan was like, hey, I'd love to talk to you, so thank you, sir. Yeah, it'll be a pleasure. All right, so why don't you tell us a little about yourself? Okay, uh, well, I guess if we sort of start talking about how it all began in, with music for me as a, as a fan. And so when I was growing up, um, I discovered uh, Top 40 Radio. And this is back in the early 1970s uh, in the UK. And uh, I listened to the chart each week. Uh, so I was sort of keeping in touch with the hits. On TV, the only thing we had really back then was this, the main music program was Top of the Pops, uh, which people have heard of, I guess. And Yeah, you can see, you know, YouTube and clips of that where, you know, so just um, what year did you graduate? Uh, you know, we call it high school, but, you know. Um, All right. Yeah. Uh, that would have been, oh, goodness, uh, later, I guess, about like 76 or something, mid-70s. Okay. So you and I are the same age. I, I was born in 59, and I graduated high yep. school in 77. So, yes. There we um, go. So you and I are that same generation where um, you got everything from AM radio. Um, yep. I assume growing up in the UK, you had the same thoughts. Um, and But so your parents in your household like what kind of music was it a big music house did they listen to a lot of lps or music on the you know the radio or not so much i mean they were um i was um the youngest of three kids and so you know that my oldest brother was like 15 years older than me so wow my parents were quite kind of I guess old-fashioned in their tastes, as, as it seemed to me at the time. They had um, they had a lot of classical music, a little bit of folk. Um, they even had some of those old 78s. Uh, that was the kind of record player we had uh, when I was growing up. But my brother, who was another brother who was 10 years older than me, was a big influence because he uh, he sort of caught on to you know the Beatles and the Stones in a big way. He was the right age for that, so he influenced me a little bit with. Uh, with his choices, but I didn't really sort of click uh, and sort of start listening myself until um, the early 1970s. So the, the first big influence, for example, was uh, T-Rex. I remember um, hearing them when they were just getting really big with uh, Rider White Swan and Bang a Gong and you know those early hits. 
do now I obviously know um you know in the 60s and the when I came into my musical awareness you know so 73 74 um you know, I, I obviously the British invasion and all the influence, but was there just as much American rock and roll being listened played there in your stations as British rock and roll being played in America? I think so. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we did, didn't have probably the range of stations that you you guys have, but uh, um, there was just sort of one or two stations really for you know sort of pop pop and rock as as we know it. Um, back then, so it was it was pretty limited, but um, but yeah, as I say, I mostly started off just checking out the charts each week, and that was a good mix of um, of, of British and American. I, I think it's, it'd be safe to say. I mean, for, for example, one of the first things I can ever remember hearing um, on on the radio uh, was um, a song called "Band of Gold" by Frida Payne, who I believe is American. I don't really know anything about her background, but uh, that was a big hit over here. I can right hear up. the song in my head as we talk. Yeah, yes, that's so it's uh, kind of one of those sort of Motown type. Uh, um, maybe she was a one-hit wonder. I can't remember anything else about uh, Frida Payne, but I do remember the song, and and so I got hooked on checking it out every week. Um, as I say, the big impact really came when I, I heard uh, T Rex, uh, and then of course I, I saw on the TV Mark Bolan and T Rex doing. I think it was Telegram Sam. And that was my kind of my moment that was like the equivalent of Bruce seeing Elvis on Ed Sullivan. <laughs> right. I was going to say, is Top of the Pops y'all's version of, you know, Ed Sullivan or, you know, Bandstand, you know, because where you had your, you know, fix of trying to see live, you know, or lip synced performances weekly. Yeah, that that's uh, it was certainly a focus on on live stuff, uh, which was all all lip synced, as you say. Uh, I don't think anybody was was allowed to play fully live um, for some time until later on, maybe the later seventies. One or two people sort of began rebelling against that. But as far as we knew, I mean, I didn't that wasn't any the wiser. It was just a way to see the people that were singing the songs, and they were either live in the studio or there was. Um, not exactly sort of videos as such, but more kind of uh, like sort of collages of uh, uh, images they put together to accompany songs. But also famously, they had a, a bunch of, um, uh, of, of dancers called Pan's People. And this was very exciting for teenage watchers to see these girls um, sort of jumping about uh, to whatever it was that they couldn't get the band in to play live for. So it, it yeah. was a mixture mixture of the way they presented it that way that sounds very cool um so here in i was growing up in louisiana but uh casey Kasem's top 40 was something that they played on the local am station you know sundays from like 12 to 3 every sunday and that was he counted down the top 40 songs so did you have a similar kind of you know, countdown show there in the UK. Yeah, that there was a similar, uh, or I think there was a series of very similar, you know, sort of chart rundown um, programs. There was one I think called actually called Solid Gold sixty that may even have done like the top sixty. It sounds a bit hard to be sure about. Um, yeah. From my 
country now, but uh, but certainly you'd get the top 20, 30, 40, whatever, um, uh, every week, yeah, at the weekend, and that was always a big deal, uh, to keep in touch with what was going on. Uh, so that was, yeah, a bit very important. You know, I, I that's interesting, and I'm going to put on my old man syndrome, right? Well, back in my day, <laughs> but, you know, it was true. It was, um, you know, there was... Uh, you know, unless you bought a 45, um, you know, and or albums, and, you know, then, of course, we graduated to 8-tracks, um, uh, that, you know, you, the radio was where you hit your songs, and, and you would, um, and, and you're right, growing up in a small town, I, we only had two um, top 40 stations then, of mm-hmm. course, there was a couple of country and western stations. Um, so it was not, you know, like now where you just do Spotify or YouTube or, mm. you know, Pandora or, you know, you can do Sirius On Demand. And it's just, you know, and you can pick your, like, if I'm in the mood for Beatles, they now have a Beatles channel. If I feel like, you know, listening to songs from the 60s or the 70s or the 80s, Sirius has all those. You know, back then it was truly this diverse kind of a little bit rock and roll, a little bit crossover country, a little bit of Motown, a little bit of soul, rhythm mm. and blues. And, and you just it never you're never were quite sure what you were going to get on that station. That's right. Yeah. But I think it, it, that that's it. There wasn't the sort of control and choice that we have now. But at the same time, you're exposed to a good variety. So that kind of unpredictability was good because. It just, I think it just kept your mind open to all different kinds of, um, of music. Oh, absolutely. I, I agree. And um, it is, I, I'm sure that, you know, teenagers now do have their favorite radio station. And I'm sure they mm-hmm. do. Of course, it's probably streaming versus, yep. you know, in their car <laughs> radio. But uh, that's, that's amazing. So yeah. you talked about T-Rex. Um, I also wanted to go back a little bit. Your, we talk a lot about siblings on this show when I'm having a guest that, you know, if you're the oldest, you tend to influence your younger brothers or sisters. And yep. then if you're a younger, you are influenced one way or another. Like maybe if your big brother's really into rhythm and blues or the blues, you may go, nope. I don't want to be like my brother. I want to be into pop or vice versa. Sometimes I want to be just like my brother, you know, cause he's cool. So I want to be cool. So you, I, I'm five years different. So I'm the oldest. My sister is five years younger than I am. My uh, little brother is 10 years younger than I am. Uh, my wife has the same thing as yours. Her brother is 12 years older than her. And then her sister is like, they are, I guess, what you almost call Irish twins, right? They're within a year and a half of each other's age. Okay. So um, talk to me about, you know, what your big brother, how he influenced you. Well, I guess um, this is the main um, things that I remember is that he had these sort of mid to late 60s um, albums, which I hadn't really seen before. I didn't really know anything about too much about records and a little bit about singles, but um uh, he was an album collector, and he had, had had the Rolling Stones. I think he had Aftermath as one that um, springs to mind. 
Um, he had some had some David Bowie. Uh, he had some Beatles. Uh, being as I say, ten years older, he had um, Velvet Underground and Lou Reed and that kind of thing. Uh, also, sort of slightly more unusual stuff like Pink Floyd and King Crimson. So you know, he was obviously experimenting with the, uh, widening his um, his tastes. Some of that's kind of like rubbed off on me pretty quickly. The the more accessible stuff. Um, I got into David Bowie and the Stones pretty quickly, uh, probably at least partly thanks to him. So, um, yeah, he, he was probably, apart from the radio, the other major influence at that time. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Um, and, you know, I always think of that scene on Almost Famous where the older sister, you know, goes off to leave the house and she leaves all these albums and you know, the young, the main character is looking at these and, you know, he sees Pet Sounds and all these other albums. And that's, you know, that kind of influence. Yeah. Um, so let's move to, because now the audience is going, okay, Jesse, been 15 minutes. <laughs> you haven't even mentioned Bruce yet. Uh, <laughs> Dan, do you remember when you first discovered Bruce? Yeah, pretty vividly. Uh, there were sort of kind of two major moments. The the first actual exposure was um, uh, when I was at college, 1976, uh, and uh, a college friend gave me um, a mixtape, compilation cassette tape, uh, of just all the kinds of things that he liked. He was a year older, and again, it was his way of sharing what he, he liked with me and thought I would enjoy. And there was this one track called Born to Run, and I liked it, uh, along with all the other stuff on the tape, but it didn't didn't grab me um, immediately. Um, I have to admit, um, until a couple of years later, late 1978, still at college, the same friend had got one of the early bootlegs from the Darkness tour, and this was the Roxy 78, uh, one of those um, those old vinyl bootlegs, and. Um, and he played it to me, and I was I was getting into it. But the actual moment, the really special moment for me, was that uh, my friend had an electric guitar. He could play really well, and he played along uh, pretty much note for note with the guitar solo to Candy's Room. So my memory is that the, listening to Bruce uh, playing on the on the bootleg, and my friend kind of playing along and highlighting the guitar solo, that kind of really pointed out to me like, hey, this is actually pretty amazing and that was as the way I look back my moment of conversion if you like interesting um you know I'm always fascinated by because most people can give it if not a specific moment the way you do you know a general mm -hmm. I, I I like this song and then all of a sudden it led me to others um yep. that's kind of cool and and how Nate um your friend you know the guitar that guitar solo being kind of your entry path to doing that. Um, interesting. So yeah. after you've heard this, what, what were your next steps? Well, then, of course, that was the, it was the classic sort of uh, procedure where I had to go out and start collecting whatever I could. And, of course, at that time, there were only the four albums. Right. And so, but I got those and sort of got into them big time, you know, sort of played them endlessly and learned everything. And at that stage... Um, you know, I, I totally missed um, Bruce's first appearance in the UK back in 1975. I remembered hearing about it at the time, but it just kind of like just passed me over because I wasn't interested in all the all the hype at the time. I remember the hype, 
but it actually put me off. It didn't interest me. So I, and you know, you know that's really interesting because you hear the stories about him tearing down the posters and being really upset with the amount of hype they were giving him. You know, yeah, um, definitely. And and so you're actually a good example of what he was worried about. Yes, uh, you know, that's and, right. you know, as a what I do for a living is I manage a customer service center, a technical support team. And, you know, we talk a lot about you under promise over deliver, right? Mm. You, 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 you set lower expectations and then try to achieve them versus, and I know Bruce was worried, okay, you've set high expectation and I'm going to, is there any way to live up to that hype? Um, you know, cause if you go in thinking this is going to be, um, you know, I, I the other example I give is when someone goes to Disney World or Disneyland or going to tour, like I'm going to go tour, see a lot of the tourist spots in England or in New York. And if your expectations are so high, it's hard for the reality to meet the fantasy. So yeah. that's interesting. Um, so, yeah, you, you had missed his chance. So what next then? Yeah, so, um, I mean, uh, also, Bruce didn't come over and tour uh, during the Darkness uh, era, which was, again, a big shame, because that would have been just about perfect timing for me, um, having become a, a sort of fresh fan then. So I had to wait a couple of years, uh, about three years, really, until, um, you know, his next visit, which was the, you know, the European tour on for the River album um, in 1981. But in the meantime, because I was getting so... Uh, so into the music, but at the same time I felt quite isolated. I, um, and I, there was so little information in those days, you know, of course it's all pre-internet time. Uh, all we had was the music papers and the radio and a little bit of TV. So um, I started doing um, my own Springsteen fanzine, point blank, because I thought, well, it's a way for me to sort of, you know, kind of pass the time until something happens, but it's also, you know, in the process, it's a way of hopefully getting, making contact with some other fellow fans. And then I began to sell it, sort of mail order, sort of small ads in the music press. And that was a huge success in terms of uh, meeting other people. This is fascinating because um, I think I've shared this story. I Probably not on this one, but on my Doctor Who podcast that mm. um, my first Growing up in a small town in Louisiana, you know, I I hardly knew anyone else that read comic books. And I had never been able to go to a convention. And in the, um, you know, like early 90s, I got, I figured, I found, and I don't remember how now, but a um, Teen Titans uh, fanzine right. uh, that, you know, the Marv Wolfman George Perez team that was in the 80s, the new Team Titans. And all of a sudden, you know, I got involved in fandom and was fascinated with this, uh, you know, and they were already a pretty established club. So I talk to me a little about the early days. So obviously, it sounds like you're doing the same thing of the reason I started this podcast. I wanted more, I wanted to hear a podcast of people talking about their love of Bruce. There was nothing at the time on, you know, as far as podcast. So I said, okay, well, I can curse the darkness or light a candle. I'm going to start. 
Now then, there's four or five other podcasts about Bruce, and they're all wonderful in their own way. So you're going, I want to know more. I want to interact with other Bruce fans. So what made you decide to do this fanzine and, and kind of walk through the steps of how to get it started? Okay, I guess, well, the inspiration came because I didn't really know anything about uh, fanzines and, until, uh, and I forget exactly how it happened. I, I, that's at some at some point must must have been about 1979. I uh, I got hold of um, uh, a couple of copies of uh, Thunder Road, which was I think at the time probably the only fanzine out of the states, of course. And I must have got the mail order. Uh, and this was amazing because it was the first time I'd ever seen an entire magazine. Um, and I think at this at the point I started, it was like the about the fifth issue in. At which point they graduated from sort of fairly basic early days to a full color, glossy, proper magazine production. So to get this in the mail, you can imagine this is just like mind blowing because it's it's a it's this wonderful um, sort of shiny full color magazine entirely devoted to Bruce and you know related musicians. And yeah, uh, because, it's yeah, because I can remember in 77 when i discovered brian wilson and the beach boys i was hungry for any information i could find and you know so you're going through music magazines and if you found one article that was a page and a half you were thrilled and so you bought the magazine and you you know looked everywhere you can you know going and reading encyclopedias and and looking for books you know you're in the book section because this wasn't, and our world is so different now. You you know you go on Google, or mm -hmm. you know whatever your favorite search engine. Go you know Bruce Springsteen books, and all of a sudden yeah. there's a list of them, and you know and and here's the cheapest place you can buy them, and whether you can get free shipping. But back then you there's nothing. No, that's that's right. It's a constant search, as you say. There's there's no, nothing laid on. The way it is with the internet nowadays, where it's all just sort of there for you to, to browse pretty much. But yeah, you, you have to really be a detective. And as you say, I went out and I bought the music papers. There were two or three you could get each week. Um, there was maybe like a, what, a couple of monthlies as well. But um, there was so little to you know, sort of feel you know, clutching at straws. So the moment when you realize that somebody out somewhere is doing, you know, an entire magazine on a regular basis, uh, really sort of uh, is sort of extraordinary um, moment. But then I suppose because that was quite uh, an occasional thing, it was actually drawing towards, the, the, I think, the end of its life and it was sort of wrapped up um, maybe only one or two issues later. And of course, also at the time, Bruce was working quite slowly. So there was, you know, relative to, to right now, and uh, it, it seemed like you're sort of waiting forever for any kind of news. Um, there's just sort of little rumors and little tiny little tidbits, but for the most point, at, you know, at that time, 1979, 1980. So kind of out of frustration, if you like, I think, well, you know, there's got to be more going on if you if you can find people who, who know what, what's happening. So that was this double purpose of made me thinking, well, if I start, if I advertise to say that, okay, I'm interested in doing a fancy, and that has to be the first stage. I can't do it all on my own. I need to have some friends and some contacts to help. I just need to find the people out there who are interested in making it happen and thinking in terms of, of doing it, you know, um, 
as a sort of UK product found was yeah. for something like this. And I, I very quickly put together the, the first issue just with the bits and pieces I had and thought, okay, now I'll have something to send people and this will get things started and hopefully more people will contribute and it will become something where I really wanted to be just the editor rather than someone who wrote you know, the majority of it myself and, and just sort of put things together that people could provide. And that's pretty much exactly what happened, thankfully, because I very quickly got um, got people who were interested writing writing to me. And again, you have to bear in mind, this is, this is all done in the days when everything is done through letters, through the mail, occasionally a phone call, and very, very occasionally you actually meet someone in, in, in person, but most of it was done through just correspondence for weeks and weeks and weeks. So it actually ended up being months before I put out the first issue that was like September 1980, very cheap homemade production, just like sort of photocopies, stapled and done all by myself and then mailed out to the people who wanted wanted to have it. Did you that, charge for it? Uh, yeah, basically just covering costs. I, I right. was never interested in making a profit. I thought, well, you know, it's not fair for me to, to, to profit out of out of um, someone whose music I love. It's it's all about the other stuff that I'm going to get out of it, which is the, the, right. the friends, information, everything else. So I was really just yeah covering costs. and um, But that also, I thought, well, that will make it as easy as possible for people to, to join in because I don't want to make it. Uh, you know, prohibitive in terms of cost to others. Right. Did um, do you still have copies of some of them? I do have a very few, a very few left um, of those original ones that I, I printed back in the eighties. But what I decided to do, because obviously you know the world moved on uh, and <laughs> come around. Oh, it was, must have been about two thousand ten um, when I was much more involved with all the stuff online like Facebook and everything. And I realized that well, what I should do is just, you know, move into the modern age and, and, and share this stuff electronically. So I, I, I much later, as I say, around that time, um, I, I scanned all the copies and try to get as good, as good quality copies as possible. And so they are available as um, downloads from a, a site I, I put together, which I'll send you the, the link for. Yeah, obviously. please do. I'll, I'll include that in the sure. show notes. And that's, but talk about a wonderful time capsule of, you know, Bruce fandom and uh, Bruce, you know, career itself. Uh, sure. Nice. Yeah, no, I was very lucky, I think, you know, despite the early frustration that I did that at the time, looking back, because, like I said, I never really anticipated that it would, would, would bring me so much, you know. I thought if I'm if I'm lucky, I'll get a bit of information and make a few friends and that kind of thing, a few a few contacts. But it, it totally changed my life. And you know, right now, almost all the best friends I have sort of date back to that that era, and and, and the musical experiences it's brought me. I just sort of well, you know, um, how long have you got? <laughs> yeah. So Dan, how many how many issues or how many years did you do this? Well, it was mostly, um, I think you, you could say the 80s in a nutshell. Um, and I didn't want to commit to doing like subscriptions because I was aware that, you know, this was one of the pitfalls that Thunder Road had experienced. You know, you're getting, it all becomes about pressure to commit to um, produce a certain number of issues in a certain number of time. And that wasn't what I was interested in. I was just thinking, well, I need to do what I need to do. 
as and when it's 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 ready. Right. So I said, said to everyone, you know, okay, I'm not going to take subscriptions, but I'm going to advertise in these places. So if you want to what, find out when I'm going to be doing something, you know, you can just keep an eye on, on the uh, on the small ads in the papers, or you can send me a, a stamped addressed envelope, and I can I'll keep you updated that way. That was the way it worked, but you know, back in those days, so it was literally because of all the huge amount of correspondence that was involved in between each issue, it ended up being more or less like once per year. So throughout the 1980s, um, there's literally like 10 issues or something like that, one or two extras and pieces. Um, it's it's some other sort of side projects. You, you but, just brought but, me back in time, whether you yeah. want to use the Wayback Machine or the TARDIS, self-addressed <laughs> stamped envelopes, S-O-S-E. Oh, yeah. You know, I have <laughs> not it. thought of that in the longest time. Um, <laughs> you know, one of the things people suggested when you sent a fan letter to especially authors that yeah. you would include a self-addressed stamped envelope so that it's easy for them to write you back, throw exactly. it back in the envelope and send it back to you. That's the key. That's what um, it's yes, all about. Yeah. It is because, you know, I think everyone appreciates fandom, um, but it could be. So that, boy, that's that's a great memory. Um, yeah, I look forward to, um, I, I that'll be fun to go through. That will be a wonderful uh, thing. So, uh, so you're doing this about, you know, one a year, and then just as the 90s hit, um, I take it life took over or other people were filling in the void and you didn't, have the itch anymore which was it or a little bit of everything a combination of things really because yeah i kind of felt on the one hand i kind of felt well okay i've kind of achieved everything i want to do um in terms of um making contacts and uh, i had great fun sort of expressing myself through the the fanzine but it had been a lot of work as i say it was like sort of pretty much 10 years of non-stop work and at that point there were other things happening which had kind of taken over and I felt were better vehicles for all the information. So over here in the UK we had um, had Badlands and uh, well known as the um, as the sort of you know the fan organization. They'd started up and uh, become really well established in the late 80s. Uh, we had Backstreets of course coming out of the US and everything they did, the magazine and the website later. So there were many more sort of avenues and, and, and vehicles and uh, ways you could find information uh, even as relatively early as, as, as the end of the 80s, the early 90s. And also Bruce had become, let's not forget, you know, way more famous by that point. I mean, we'd had the, the big, you know, born in the USA, boom, and he'd become pretty much a household name. So there was a lot of information just generally in the media. And there were books and there was um, all kinds of things. So that, that need that I had had 10 years before had kind of faded in that respect. And as you say, also life kind of got in the way. I, I, I got, got busier, I got I found work, I found relationships, um, all kinds of things happened. Uh, so it was much easier to just sort of naturally think, well, okay, I'll take a back seat now. I can just enjoy being a fan. And it wasn't until quite a bit later that, as I said, I thought, well, it would be nice to revisit the stuff and sort of put an online archive up but that was, you know, as I say, a lot, a lot later. Oh, very good. So we kind of took a sidetrack, though, loved it. Um, yeah. When, when did you finally get to see Bruce perform live? Okay, well, and this would, would probably combine with um, 
um, a bit of a story, and probably probably has to be my my favourite concert story because it was a, a sort of amazing experience around that that very first show. So, again, we're still talking back in the in the pre-internet days, um, yes. in the spring of 1981, and uh, so my first concert is actually Frankfurt in Germany. It's quite bizarre because I'm living in the UK and I'm out of work, and people are going to wonder. How that actually happened, but um, uh, so at the time, luckily, I'd had a couple of issues of the the fanzine uh, out, and so I had some uh, some pen pals and some friends, uh, correspondents, whatever you want to call them. Um, out of work, I had time on my hands, but I was broke. Yeah. So this is um, a bit of a dilemma. If I wanted to travel anywhere, I had to hitchhike around, uh, sleep on friends' floors, that kind of thing. Sometimes I even, even slept rough outside. A real, a real tramp with a small T, you uh-huh. know, uh, for, for, for the most part. But the, the advantage of having the fanzine meant that if I sold a few uh, here and there, it meant I could get um, sort of you know, extra bits and pieces, you know, not just basic necessities to live on, but uh, sometimes the luxury like a train ticket and that kind of so um, the UK tour was originally supposed to be the kickoff for the European tour in 81. And as people probably remember, it was postponed because Bruce was really quite badly sick. Um, and postponement of it by a couple of months meant that the European leg, the continental leg, was the, uh, was the actual beginning of the tour, the way it worked out. But in the meantime, because of the time delay, a lot more concerts have been added. The whole tour sort of grew in scale. Uh, I've been collecting a few tickets uh, for the UK shows, and so I was thinking, oh, I'm going to have to wait uh, a couple of months. This is quite frustrating to see Bruce for the first time. But I was quite wrong, because uh, suddenly one day I had a letter in the, in the mail from a German pen pal, a lady called Rina, uh, and all included was a note saying, see you at the Canadian Pacific Hotel in Frankfurt on the 13th of April. And enclosed was a ticket for Bruce's show at what? Frankfurt How on the cool 14th of April. Yeah, I mean, this, this has only happened, you know, like I said, because of the fans. You know, I was so lucky that this girl just decided that, hey, Dan doesn't want to wait. Um, come on over to, to Germany. <laughs> so, so I was, had this invitation, basically. But then, of course, they have the problem of thinking, okay, I need to get to Germany. Yeah. <laughs> so I had no other choice but to hitchhike, and I hitchhiked from London, where I lived, to Frankfurt, going via Paris, where I had another um, pen pal that I've met through the music papers. I am not very good at geography, but I do believe there is a body of water separating the UK (laughs) from continental Europe. So how do you hitchhike across the English Channel? (laughs) Well, in those days, and in which hitchhiking was actually much more common, thankfully, yeah. it was quite uh, acceptable, and there weren't sort of horror stories that uh, some people experienced. No, it right. was a very innocent time, and it was easy to do for the most part, especially for you know a single guy yeah. on his own. Um, well, you you just have to have a. It must have taken me. Okay, Dan, I lost you for a couple of minutes, so start over. You get oh. to the coast. Okay, uh, we got cut off. Yeah, I got yeah. to the coast, and um, after I don't know how long it took, 
uh, didn't, didn't keep track of the, of the details, but it felt like it was about maybe two or three days for the whole trip. Yeah. I, I'm at some point I found somebody who was willing to give me a ride on on the ferry, because that was okay. the that was the only way you could cross the uh, the channel at the time. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, and so then once you're on the mainland, continue. You just go. You got to Paris. You had a friend there. That's right. That was like my sort of uh, part, sort of partway uh, stop because I, I knew I could uh, uh, join my friend and sort of you know have a. Um, Get a you know um, a decent meal and a bed for the night and uh, you know that kind of thing and also just talk to somebody about the whole experience. So yeah. that that was really helpful. And um, uh, so and then I continued eventually to uh, uh, to Frankfurt, where I arrived just in time the day before the show and the day that I was supposed to meet uh, meet my friends at a late um, evening, I guess. Um, on the 13th of April. So I'm tired and I'm dirty and I'm, I just sort of think, oh, you know, I'm just so relieved to be there because the best thing of all was for the first time ever, I saw a huge sign. I remember it was a red, big red lettered sign outside this arena, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, 14th of April. Gosh, and I can just imagine the smile on your face. Yeah, and goosebumps, you know, and just like, this is real. It suddenly began to feel like this is actually happening. Um, so, um, uh, the immediately across the street from the arena, uh, very convenient, was um, this hotel, the Canadian Pacific Hotel, which uh, I was supposed to meet my friend. But it's this huge, modern, you know, five-star kind of place. I'm pretty self-conscious because of the, <laughs> the condition I'm in. So anyway, I go and ask at the reception for my friend. And the, uh, they, they call up um, to her room and they say, oh, she's out. I think, oh, well, that's too bad. I have to think what to do. So all I could think to do is I left a note for her to say, well, I'm sorry I missed you, but I'm going to just go and crash out. And I'm exhausted after my trip. I'm going to go and sleep in the park because I've got a sleeping bag but there was no way I could afford a room, not at this place, and I didn't have time to look around for anywhere else. It was really, really cheap. I was just exhausted, so I went out and crashed out in the park just across the road. Meanwhile, and this is the part of the story which I, I love, but I, 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 <laughs> this is the um, sort of the key to it. So unknown to me, and it was a, such a close thing, I just missed this, just around the corner from the reception uh, in the hotel bar, my friend is sitting there waiting for me. <laughs> yeah. So, and of course, in the days before mobile phones, and there was no way I could right. get in touch. They didn't know where she was. She was just sitting there on her own. And she was sitting with copies of my fanzine displayed around her. And this was because another friend of mine back in the UK had photocopied and sent her a bunch of copies uh, for me because, I mean, I could travel lighter. Um, and in order for him to get them through his company's mailing system, he marked them for display. So my friend, being a very literal German and not having any explanation, she, <laughs> she duly sat and displayed them when she opened the package sitting in the bar. And then the most extraordinary thing happens. Who should wander into the bar but the whole E Street band? No. They just happened. This is an absolute fluke. They just happened to be staying in the same hotel. And 13th of April will ring bells with some people. It's Max's birthday. 
So the band are all there to buy Max a drink for his birthday. And the first thing that happens is that Clarence sees this pretty young girl on her own, surrounded by Bruce Springsteen images. So he goes to sit down with her. And he puts his arm around her and says, hey, little girl, are you married? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so my friend is having this amazing experience. She's sitting there, and on one side she's got Clarence, she's got Bruce on the other side, and the rest of the band surrounding her. And they're all sort of picking up the, these fanzines and flicking through them, and having drinks and celebrating with Max. And here's yours truly, <laughs> in his sleeping bag under a tree in the park across the road. And I slept through it all. <laughs> Oh, but, my goodness. But my favorite part is, is actually like a sort of footnote to that, which is that several drinks later, uh, it must have been sort of, I guess, maybe midnight or something, you know, end of the party, whatever. Rena goes back past the, the reception and they call her and say, oh, we have, have a note for you, miss. And she finds my note and reads it and she goes back to Clarence. She says, Clarence, we've got to go and find my friend Dan. He's in the park. And so... She and Clarence go around the park looking for me, and they're calling, Dan French, come out tonight. <laughs> oh. oh. And I, I still slept through it all. I missed it all. But, I mean, I found out about all this the next day. Um, and the next day, is, is that's a whole new story. We probably haven't got time for that. But in a nutshell, very quickly, after meeting Rena for the first time, she took me to meet Clarence for the first time. We hung out with Clarence because he had, you know, plenty of time that day. Sure. We finally, um, he took us to the sound check. We thought we'd sort of be kicked out and, you know, left our own devices, but he took us into that. And then there's the actual show, our very first show, which is just obviously totally surreal at this point. Sure. And then finally, after the show, and that's part of the other story, is that I get to meet the man himself. Oh well, if you've got time, I've got time. But I, I want to stop. Did she? Yeah. Did did the band sign a couple of the fanzines for you know the zines for her? Yeah, she she got she got um, oh yes she got all the autographs and oh nice. Sadly, she didn't nice. get photographs at that point, but we did get pictures later, which was the next day. She, okay, so the, yeah, um, yeah, because if you're good, I'm good on time. So okay. um, the. You, so you finally, yeah, that's you finally wake up, yeah, and you know you go back in the hotel like, hey, is she here yet? Is that is that what you did? Yeah, basically, I I, I just go up and um, you know obviously I have no idea what's what's happened overnight. I just right. go to the room and say, hey, nice to meet you. Thanks for the ticket. And the first thing she says to me is, Dan, come on, we have to go and wake Clarence. And I'm going. You're like what? What? Yeah. <laughs> The Clarence? And she says, yeah, yeah, yeah. He told me to wake him up. So, you know, we go along, find another another room in the hotel. She knocks. And eventually there's this sort of sleepy voice answers. Uh, I still remember, you know, the door opened and it's pitch black inside. And the first thing I see is like this white vest walking towards me. And there's a huge black guy gripping my hand and shaking my hand and wearing, hey, a, it, a, wearing a, a cowboy hat. <laughs> As Bruce says, the biggest man you'll ever see, I imagine, you're just going, I know. What? My, is my, this, am I still dreaming in the park? Exactly. My, my first experience of uh, an East Reader in the flesh is Clarence, who's barely awake, coming over and shaking my hand in a hotel room. 
um, which is, is just incredible. Um, anyway, he has a, 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 a he's had a lot of drinks, and he's saying, "Oh, it's it's too early. I can't wake up." He's uh, come back in, you know, in a couple of hours. So we go off and have breakfast, and I can get a chance for a shower and this kind of thing, and a little chat. So, so okay, you can tell how old I am, Dan. <laughs> is in my mind, I'm thinking, Dan hadn't had a chance to shower. Is he gonna? How do you politely tell a member of the E Street Band, like, look, I want to go to the tour, I want to do the sound check, but can you just give me thirty minutes to just wipe the grime off? Let me take a hot shower. Well, so I'm glad he needed some more sleep. Well, exactly. Thanks to parents uh, needing uh, that time. Yeah, I needed that time too, uh, even probably even more, because yeah, I just need to just to get my head around the whole thing. Um, I mean, all of this is just, you know, one step at a time is, you know, more sure. sort of surreal than, than the last item. Um, in fact, we had to go back twice um, to wake him up. Uh, the second time, he still wasn't ready. So we went away and we had, uh, had some lunch and, uh, you know, just, just talking, talking endlessly, as you can imagine. Well, Finally, you know. Hmm? What's, what's amazing is he's, he's not blowing you guys off. He isn't like, look, I was drunk. I really have no interest in this anymore. It's truly, look, I'm I'm doing the snooze alarm. I, yeah. you're, I you know I'm excited to meet you. I, I I'm take care, but I'm just not finished sleeping yet. So that's got to be cool. Yeah, that's right. He genuinely wanted us to come back. I mean, we were kind of like his, um, you know, his alarm call for the day. And, yes. Um, but but more than that, because he was a you know he remembered uh, Rena from the night before. They'd had a a, a good time together, and. Um, you know, he was obviously quite happy to entertain a friend of hers as well. So there's just the two of us. And you can imagine, well, it, maybe it's hard to imagine that, you know, bear in mind there are no other fans hanging around the hotel at all. No one knows right. there. You know, I think, you know, for the rest of the day until it was almost showtime, I probably saw maybe like two or three other fans, if that, hanging around. So it was incredibly easy. There was no security. There was no... Um, no other hangers-on, there was no assistance. It was just Clarence on, on his own. He had somebody helping him uh, elsewhere. Um, but uh, in terms of, you know, he didn't have any entourage with him otherwise. So it's just him and me and my friend for most of the day. And we, we just sort of sit and hang around, hang out with him for an hour or so in his room. Remember at one point he made a call to his, his mother and he's getting himself dressed and this kind of thing. And just, just chatting and relaxing. And we're just sitting around and just pinching each other <laughs> still. And this is all before the show, obviously. So uh, I'm thinking, well, this has got to stop at some point. And it, you know, when it's, it's got to be showtime. And then we have to leave them to go and do the sound check and all this kind of thing. Um, but we, he tells us to go and wait in the lobby. And uh, we figure, well, at least we'll get to see everyone, you know, congregating together. And they'll go out and, and um, we, can, we can wave or whatever. And that'll be really cool. So, you know, we're sitting in the lobby and uh, Rena has met, you know, some of these people. So she's pointing out, you know, girlfriends and wives and crew and that kind of thing. John Landau and people like that. And at one point, um, I said, well, you know, everyone's here pretty much except for Clarence. So obviously we're still waiting for him. And Bruce, and she says, well, there's Bruce. And I said, where? And she said, oh, that guy. And there's this little guy sort of hunched, you know, in a, in a chair dark glasses and a leather jacket I'm like, that's Bruce he's tiny I was expecting someone sort of larger than life you know 
Yeah. And, and he's very sort of withdrawn and preoccupied, and everyone else is just chatting. He's just sort of, you know, sitting by himself. Eventually, the lift doors open, Clarence comes out, fully dressed, for the sound check, of course, in, you know, total, you know, like a black suit and cowboy hat and, you know, dressed to the nines. And it's like, he looks at everyone as if, like, okay, I'm here now. Now we're ready. Now that I'm here, the party can start. <laughs> That's it. Pretty much, yeah, the king is here, the king is here. And so we're thinking, okay, this is sound check time. This is where we say goodbye. But we walk with him briefly. Uh, and with the, just with the idea of saying, well, thanks very much. You know, it's just been great. Yeah. And they have a minibus um, waiting outside. But bear in mind that the arena is just over the road. Yeah. Um, Bruce says, no, let's walk. And this is literally just like 50 yards to cross the road. And I'm just within a couple of feet of him. And there were some security offences that they started to put up, you know, just sort of uh, early days, but um, they're in the way. So Bruce actually vaults over one of them, and he drops his jacket, which he doesn't realise he's done, because it's just dangling over his shoulder. So right. I, I picked up his, his jacket, and this is the first words I get to say to him. I say, you know, hey, Bruce, you know, and I come up with some. Yeah, okay. Um, well, then I just hand him back his jacket, which he dropped, and... Um, uh, he's still obviously very preoccupied, so I just left him in peace and to sort of lead the way across the road. So we, we just basically walk with Clarence and then thinking that it's time for him to say, okay, got to leave you here, you know, take yeah, care. Yeah, because at this point, I'm going to pause you just for an editorial, a gestatorial. You've gone, I've realized now then that the whole E Street band has seen Point Blake, my fanzine. I, I I am on, I am in, I've gotten safely to Germany and I am catching up with one of my, you know, my fan, you know, long distance fans, you know, my pen pal. I have met the band. I have spent time with Clarence. I have actually got to talk to Bruce and hand him his jacket. And I still got the show to go. I am playing on house money. You know, this is truly like, okay, I'm not saying I want to die after the concert, but at this point, I don't think life can get any better. Is I'm guessing that's your feelings? Yeah, I mean, exactly. And it, and looking back, it's, you know, despite all the amazing experiences I've had, it's probably still, you know, the most amazing. Oh, yeah, I can that, only imagine. Okay, so. All experience. All right, continue on, sir. It just gets better and better. Yeah. So then we're we're ushered in to the to the arena, and we're thinking, my God, you know, we're we're in at the sound check, but we're a little bit nervous because we have nothing. Yeah, you um, don't have a badge, you don't have a handband, you don't have a lanyard. That's you know. right. Okay. But uh, Clarence has the presence of mind too. He gets his uh, assistant, this guy called Glenn, uh, to sort us out a couple of passes, and I, I never seen a backstage pass before I, I had never had any experience like this so i didn't even know what how this worked but he, he slaps a, a couple of passes on us and he says you can go wherever you want just keep off the stage and we're thinking my god we can just walk around and and just enjoy it and thankfully rena brought her camera with her and so we have photos from the sound check um which um, uh, are again on the site and uh, circulating and so forth well we will have the site ID in the show notes, okay. Yeah, that's right. Um, and then Bruce does the classic thing. So the band get on stage, and um, he starts playing. Um, uh, Roy starts playing. The, f the, first, the first music I actually hear is the soundtrack version, an instrumental version of Hungry Heart. And it sounds 
absolutely crystal clear to me and I'm thinking he doesn't need to spend you know like two hours or whatever doing a sound check because we'd heard about these legendary sound checks right at that time uh Bruce does the classic thing of just walking around you know level by level taking his time checking the sound at each part of the building okay so you know that's legend right Mm -hmm. that he does that that he he wants to make sure the sound sounds good everywhere. So you actually saw him doing that. I saw him and heard doing that. And I mean, I'm distracted between watching Bruce walking around the hall and obviously watching the E Street Band minus Bruce playing, you know, just really casually, but it sounds absolutely gorgeous and clear and sort of sparkling sound to my ears, you know, with about five or 10 other people in the room. Um, and so, because I can, I sit myself down in front row center and just sort of sit back and <laughs> and, yeah. and enjoy, you know, as you would. Um, and so they're they're all all on there except for Bruce. And I remember they did Hungry Heart a few times. They did Prove It All Night a few times. That was the point at which Bruce had finished his walk and he joined the band on stage. And so I'm holding my breath, and he, you know, Bruce is doing doing that. And he's doing it quite, quite seriously, quite sort of, quite a restrained way. And this is the thing that puzzles me at first. And then I realize that, of course, he's pacing himself. He's got to save his energy for the show. So it's not like you see, you know, on stage. It's just he's sort of strolling about and they're sort of, you know, talking to each other. And it's very sort of laid back performance. Uh But it still still sounds glorious. And so the whole thing took maybe an hour and a half or two hours uh, those two songs, time after time, and then it's so, um, that's it. So, in it before your actual first show, you, you and a handful of people got yeah. to see this hour and a half, two hour sound check. Yep, I know. Gosh, I'm, you, I'm, I'm, you and your friend <laughs> must have been pinching yourselves, right? Like, I can't all, believe all, this all the time and it's just this bizarre combination of events that led to this you know the fact that if it hadn't been for um my friend back in england marking the package for display you know my german friend wouldn't have been showing the fanzines off in the hotel bar if it hadn't been max's birthday all of these factors just the extraordinary combination of events that is wonderful to this, this moment you know yeah um and so the, the sound check is over and then we go back to clarence's room I'll have a rest, and uh, sort of, you know, this is a couple of hours, obviously, before the show. Um, so my friend and I, again, just the two of us, sitting in Clarence's room uh, with uh, with Glenn, the assistant, and Bruce walks in, and <laughs> so okay, and I suddenly realise there's no seat for him, so I get up, of course, and say, like, sure. hey, Bruce, seat for you, you know, you know, and then at that point uh, we get we get a, a sort of nod from Glenn. Probably now it's cool to you know um, be somewhere else. So we just in, in the nicest way we we just sort of make very our excuse. Very cool of Glenn. I mean you know yeah. because I'm sure all day long you keep thinking I don't want to overstay my welcome. Don't want to overstay yeah. my welcome. But at sure. the same time, I don't want to leave too early either. Like if they're right. okay with me. So that was kind of cool to Glenn. Go yeah, kind of okay. So that was cool. Yeah, because again, like I say, Clarence is such a sociable um, right. animal. Really, he always likes to have people around him. So it's, it seems seems natural in hindsight that he wanted. Yeah, you know, let's keep talking, let's keep hanging out. And it's only because you know when when the, the boss man walks in, right. he obviously 
to talk to, to Clarence and so Glenn thinks right okay let's leave them to it and we think absolutely fine yeah we're still you know flying high and besides we need to go out and have, get a bite to eat you know yeah. real life is, is kicking in and there's only a little time till show time and and so after that we have the whole um, excitement about the build-up to the show itself. You know, we go and find our seats. We were upgraded as well. I, I forgot to mention we had like balcony seats originally, and then we end up being something like you know twelfth row or something like that. And then the lights go down, and it's eight o'clock, and then it's Bruce and the band on stage and Factory. Um, I remember Danny playing his organ. That's the first thing you hear, and Max's drum kicks in, and the sort of the bass drum goes through your chest. And and then it's all happening. Wow, that's that's my my first show. Yeah. That, uh, so it's all downhill from here. All right. So um, we just hit an hour. So um, if it's okay with you, Dan, I'd love to schedule this. Um, we'll kind of talk some other stuff about other concerts and albums and songs. Kind of discuss fandom in a general term. Um, can we try to reschedule something in about a month? Yeah, certainly. I'd okay. love, love to. Be glad uh, to do a, another I, part. This is fascinating. I don't, I'm telling you right now, Dan, you may have, um, you may feel like I'm you in Clarence's room. Like, I'm never going to let you go. I'm going to want a schedule um, of just, you know, us talking. Um, this is great. Um, so, we'll... Next time, we'll kind of talk about how many times you've seen him perform, some more concert stories, you know, different albums and songs, and kind of, um, and you've already shared one of the things that was on our agenda is the ways fandom has affected you, but I want yeah. to get a little more into that, so we will schedule again. Uh, for mm -hmm. now, if someone wants to reach you, Dan, how can they? Okay, well, the easiest ways, uh, there's several ways, uh, I guess, on Twitter, um, at Wild and In, uh, short for Wild and Innocent. Um, I'm mostly on Facebook, and I'm easily found as, as Dan French on Facebook. I have also a lot of my own account there. I, I run four Facebook groups, so there's Point Blank. Again, you can just search for these, Point Blank. Um, Springsteen Signs, which is a group I set up specially to celebrate the use of request signs at Bruce's shows. Um, obviously, mostly active during a tour. Um, but it's still there. The Stevie Files, which is my little tribute to Mr. Van Zandt, Professor Van Zandt, I should say. And finally, not exclusively Bruce, Ticket Stub Club. So anybody who collects the ticket stubs, we basically sort of share those on the anniversary of the uh, of the date on the ticket. So those are all ways to find me. Uh, you can, but if you want to read the the, the full story, um, uh, which I've I've uh, I've shared online, and a lot more about. Um, uh, the River Tour back in 81, the fanzine downloads, all this kind of thing. It's uh, there's a Google site, and all you have to do is search for Wild and Innocent Productions, but I'll send the link to make sure. Okay. And uh, and that's also should be easily found. Oh, good. Um, so I've got tickets to see little Steven. He's coming to Dallas on October 22nd. So uh, we'll try to maybe... Maybe we'll plan after that show, and we can talk about that as well. Because did you see him when he was touring Europe? Oh yes, okay, yeah, I've good. been catch Stevie whenever I can. So yeah, okay. I look forward Absolutely. to hearing your um, impression. 
so Dan, thank you so much for taking time on a Saturday afternoon to visit with me. You are filled with wonderful stories and, and you are, I think, you know, a, a great example of someone who, you know, loves the music and loves the fandom. And um, I'm so glad we got to talk. Likewise. And uh, we will schedule something soon. But for now, listeners, if you want to join me and talk about your Bruce Bean experience. And oh, by the way, do not feel intimidated like, okay, I don't have anything. Um, we love to hear everyone's stories. You know, I, I, I stress this to people all the time, Dan. You know, some of my favorite guests have never seen Bruce live, but they mm. just have a burning, you know, passion about his music. And so I believe that every Springsteen fan has a story, and it's my crusade mission to get as many of them on tape as I can. So please reach out to me at setlustingbruce at gmail.com. Uh, we are on Twitter at setlustingbruce. My personal Twitter is at Jesse Jackson DFW. Um, and uh, let us know. I'd love to have you on. Um, Dan, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you again for your time. I'll email you and we'll work out some time in October. And for now, enjoy the rest of the, you know, the rest of the summer and have a great fall. Okay. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, we really appreciate the work you put into this, uh, especially given your own uh, personal circumstances. And here's to many more. Yes, um, I would. Um, quick note: are Are you going to try to get tickets for Broadway? I'm going to give it a shot. I know the odds are against us all, but yeah. you, you got to try. Well, that's what I did. I I, I went to. I went to dinner. We went and saw a play with a friend of mine last night, and he said, "Yeah, he said I'm, I've signed up to get it, and then I'll worry about logistics if it works out." And I said, "Yeah, that's my thought was because if the logistics don't work out, I know I'll be able to find some fan who wants to buy my tickets, which I will not make a profit on. I would just, you know, I just would want them to go to a good home, and you know, pay my cost. So, yeah, I I have that same mindset, and and I'm." You know, as I've talked about on just the, you know, last, as we're recording this, the week, this week, you know, I'm just so glad that he's doing this for himself, that he wants to do this and stretch that creative muscle. So I'm just so happy for him. Yeah, I agree. Because well, like you say, you know, he's doing it for himself. I'm convinced that there's any, he's got no need to do it no. for his career other than maybe just the fun of being able to say, hey, I played Broadway. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, he must. It must be something that he's passionate about doing. Much like when he did the bookstore appearances, yes. you know, you can tell that that was a, just something that he really got a big kick out of. I totally agree. All right, so uh, thank you, listeners. Thank you, Dan, and we'll talk to you soon. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.